is indeed a gift to be with you in worship today at Boulevard Baptist Church. I must confess this is my second opportunity to worship with you since I took this new job. But it feels like a lot longer than two and a half years since we last had this privilege of being together, doesn't it? Not only have we lived through and are we still living through the pandemic, but now James is the senior member of your staff. <laughs> he accounts for more of those seven years than he wanted to confess. When I was last here on Mother's Day weekend in 2019, you all were preparing to receive the recommendation of your pastor search committee that Austin Cardi be called as your pastor. And about the same time, you were going to receive a recommendation that Lucy be called to join your staff. And so it's wonderful to be back with you at a new season in your life and to say to you again how grateful that I am and that we are for the partnership in the gospel we share with you in the larger ministry of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. For your congregation's witness in this community, your participation in Christ's mission around the world, we do give thanks to God. Did you notice, as I do, that when Peter responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, by saying, you are the Messiah, that Peter is instantaneously in over his head? What I mean by that is Peter is speaking words that he does not understand. He's falling into a whole new life for which nothing in his prior fisherman existence has prepared him. He is falling headfirst in over his head, offering himself for a life and mission and witness that, as Paul would write to the Ephesians later on, is abundantly far more than anything he could ask or imagine in that moment on the way to Caesarea Philippi when he just in a kind of an oh, by the way, said in response to Jesus' question, you are the Messiah. He's in over his head. We start to get a clue about how much he's in over his head when Jesus responds immediately to what he says. You see what Jesus says after Peter says, you are the Messiah? <laughs> he doesn't say, congratulations, you pass AP theology. <laughs> he doesn't say, you have done well. No, he turns to Peter and says, don't say that to anyone else. Now, Lucy, I don't know what they taught at Truett Seminary about this. I feel obliged to say to the congregation that New Testament scholars are a little bit like Baptists. You get three of them together, you get five opinions. The New Testament scholars aren't quite sure what to do with Jesus' statement. Don't say anything to anybody about this. But at least some of them suggest that at least one of the things that might be motivating Jesus' command to silence is he knows Peter's not ready to say anything else about this. He's a little bit afraid that if Peter keeps on talking, it's going to get bad fast. Some of you have this sense about this sermon already, and you're praying I'll follow the same instruction. <laughs> Don't say anything. You're not ready. Same thing happens a few verses later on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John are standing with Jesus, and all of a sudden they have company, and Peter starts talking, and the 
the presence of God descends and Jesus says, y'all don't talk about this anytime soon. Peter's in over his head. He's speaking words he does not understand. He's offering himself to a life he cannot yet imagine. He's not ready to say any more. And so Jesus says, hey, that's enough. That's enough. Well, perhaps some of you in this room, being a congregation of Baptists, are among those who think there's a different explanation for Jesus' instruction. Don't say anything else about this. Good news for you folks, I don't plan to present the other seven interpretations that scholars offer. For my purposes, I can pivot quickly and say, even if you're not convinced by this clue, you'll surely be convinced that Peter's in over his head by what happens next. Jesus says to his disciples for the first time, okay, y'all, that, that's a southern translation. <laughs> We're going to Jerusalem. It's going to be ugly. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die and on the third day rise again. And you notice what Peter, who just said you are the Messiah, immediately says? He, he, he pulls Jesus aside. He rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, you got this wrong. This, this can't happen to you. Does anyone now doubt that Peter's in over his head? Can there be any suspicion about whether or not Peter really grasped what he's saying or what he signed on for? If he really understood his prior profession of faith, you are the Messiah, when Jesus made this prediction about what was going to happen at Jerusalem, he would have fallen in line in fear and trepidation and followed Jesus to Jerusalem. But instead, he does what we often do when we're in over our heads. He starts talking. And he tries to correct Jesus. He tries to tell Jesus what to do. He tries to impose his current theology and politics and thinking on Jesus and tries to ask Jesus to conform to his standards. I tell y'all, the man's in over his head. Now it's common practice for preachers to spend the rest of the sermon on this text when they take this angle giving Peter a really hard time. I have heard some of those sermons. And since I've been here twice, I need to be honest enough to tell you, I've also preached some of them. But the longer I have lived, it has begun to dawn on me that what we see in Simon Peter near Caesarea Philippi is not unique to Peter. In fact, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that what we see in Simon Peter, that is, Peter speaks the words, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, without fully understanding what he's saying. He signs up to follow Jesus without fully grasping what he's getting into. And what I want to say to you this morning is that's not unique to Peter. That's not a unique sin that Peter has committed. I want to suggest to you that that's true of all of us when we first find our way in the business of following Jesus. Now, January 1979, I was baptized. Following a profession of faith when I was nine years old. 
I grew up in a prehistoric world where when you told people that you wanted to be baptized, you went to church five straight Saturday mornings for a session with the pastor. Can you imagine? Would, would that work now, Lucy? Five straight Saturday mornings with the pastor and other folks who were interested in making the same statement as Peter, you are the Messiah. And I passed the class. And I made my profession of faith and I stood in the waters of baptism in the Wake Forest Baptist Church and I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I have to be honest enough with you today to say that although I think I sort of understood the statement, you are the Messiah as well as any nine-year-old could with a reasonable elementary school education. And I did have a desire to, to give my life to God in Jesus Christ. When I look back in retrospect, it is obvious to me that when I stood up and I spoke those words, I was way, way in over my head. There was a depth and a power and a majesty and a grace to that statement that I could not have wrapped my nine-year-old brain around had I tried. And I bet if we turn this into testimony time and I ask you all to tell your story of how you first got involved with Jesus and the first time you ever said these words that Peter says here at Caesarea Philippi, you would also acknowledge that there was probably at least as much that you hadn't yet figured out as that you had. That's why the old song, James, says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. If you wait till you have it all figured out, you'll never come at all. The, what draws us to first give our lives to Jesus to speak these Caesarea Philippi words is not that we have it all figured out, not that we have it all understood, but instead that there's this compulsion within us that we cannot let go. There's this need to be in relationship with Jesus even if we don't understand. There's this power at work in us that is abundantly far more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And so we speak before we understand and we step before we know and we find ourselves in over our heads in grace and mercy and purpose and possibility but we are in those moments in over our heads we Baptists act that out pretty dramatically in baptism I take it you all have seen how we do that someone makes Peter's statement you are the Messiah we go into the waters of baptism and someone like me literally plunges someone in the water over their heads. <laughs> Covering us. Overwhelming us. Chuck Poole, who's now the pastor at Northminster Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, years and years ago preached a sermon on baptism that he entitled, A Swift Stream of Hard Water. His point was that the waters of baptism are not a lazy river ride. It's not something easy and convenient and comfortable we do when we give our lives to Jesus and we find ourselves in the waters of baptism. No, Chuck Poole says that in the waters of baptism, the water drops off fast. We're in over our heads. We don't really know what we've gotten into. We have no idea where those waters will take us, what they will ask us to do, who they will put us in relationship with, how they will change our lives. In the moments of our baptisms, we are just like Peter. We are in over our heads. Couldn't help but reflecting this morning that this doesn't stop in baptism, by the way. 
This condition we see in Peter at Caesarea Philippi continues across our life of discipleship. The very first sermon I ever tried to preach was on Youth Sunday in 1987. And the text was Matthew's version of this passage from Mark. You will never find the transcript. But if you did, you would say that boy was in over his head. Because as an AP English student, trying to preach on deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate that the call to preach, just like the call to discipleship, throws us in deep over our heads and we have to practice and grow and learn, but we don't get it right in the beginning. We're in over our heads and, and James, as the choir was singing that beautiful anthem just a few moments ago, I couldn't help remembering the first time I ever was in a choir that offered that anthem. I was in youth choir. About the same time I preached that sermon, if you want to call it that. And as you all were singing with such beauty, I look back on the first time I stood in a choir loft and sang that anthem, and I have to look back and say, I think I sort of understood what it means to sing Peter's confession. I was in over my head, in grace over my head, in faith over my head. So when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the, the Christ of God, and, and Jesus says, hey, please don't say anything else about that yet, you're not ready. Peter's not any different from any of the rest of us who ever for the first time uttered that language that over time we come to know better, but we never fully master because God's thoughts are more than our thoughts and God's ways are beyond our ways and God's mission is so much more than our agenda and God's life is so much more than we can anticipate. The Christian condition is one of being in over heads. When y'all saw the title of the sermon, you probably thought, oh no, he's going to preach on the pandemic. <laughs> but during the pandemic, what's always been true has just been more true. <laughs> the church is in over our heads trying to figure out what it means to be faithful to Jesus. So I want us to notice how Jesus responds to Peter. And it sounds harsh at first, and I'm not yet a good enough preacher to make this response not sound harsh. Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. There's clearly a rebuke there. I think of it as kind of a shock therapy <laughs> to try to get Peter out of his current position where he's trying to direct Jesus and give instructions to Jesus and instead to put Peter in a place where he can grow in this new life that he has just found. You see what that place is? It's behind Jesus. Isn't that where followers of Jesus belong? It's behind Jesus. Get back behind me. 
Peter. It's kind of like when Joshua was talking to the children of Israel and they're getting ready to cross over into the land of promise. Remember what Joshua said to them? <laughs> you stay behind the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and don't get too close to it because you know what? You all have not passed this way before. In other words, you all are in over your heads and if you try to get too close to the Ark, much less in front of it, it's going to be ugly. You stay behind the Ark, Joshua said. Peter says, is told by Jesus, get behind me, stay behind me. Take the position of discipleship. Be a follower of Jesus. Not a manipulator of Jesus. Not a consumer of Jesus. But a follower. Be behind me. But it's not just that. Notice this too. Peter is not behind Jesus by himself because he's in over his head. He was behind Jesus by himself in over his head. His situation would be hopeless. But he is behind Jesus surrounded by other people. When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's speaking not just to Peter, but to the other disciples who were already behind him. And he puts Peter behind him with those other disciples so that in an instant, Peter is not off by himself anymore, but he's in a community with other people who are also trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus at the beginning of an uncertain journey. None of them are alone. None of them are left to their own devices. None of them are prisoners to their own intuition. By Jesus' holy design, from the very beginning, those who desire to follow him are not by themselves. They are with other followers of Jesus in a community. I can't help but imagine that that community exists to, so that we can help one another keep focused on Jesus. And even more, we can help one another keep up with Jesus. And we can help one another grow in Jesus. Because anything that starts with us being so far over our heads that we can't imagine it requires community. You dare not do this on your own. You need a community. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was trying to say in that wonderful little snippet from life together that we use in the order of worship today. <laughs> we need to live the Jesus life together because there are days when the Christ in my brother or sister's heart is stronger than the Christ in my own. We need what my friend Greg Jones calls holy friends. <laughs> Greg Jones says holy friends are the friends who challenge the sins we have come to love, affirm the gifts we are afraid to claim, and dream dreams we would otherwise never dream. Because you need friends like that. Peter needs James and John and the others if he's ever going to stay focused on Jesus, if he's ever going to keep up with Jesus, if he's ever going to grow in Jesus, he needs one another. I bring that up because I think it offers an answer to one of the questions that I hear a lot. I'm trusting that most of you all have too much time to read religious pundits. There's a lot of stuff out there about the dangers of too much cable news, and by the way, I endorse that. I think it's dangerous. But too much religious punditry is also dangerous. And one of the questions religious pundits are asking is, is there a future for the church? I mean, now that we can all just stay at home by ourselves and worship, is there any need for the church? Now that we can all just be individual consumers of religious material all by ourselves, 
Is there any need for the church like Boulevard Baptist Church or a church like any other congregation or an organization like the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? Is there any need for the church? These pundits say, because things would be so much more efficient. And by the way, when you get these people together behind Jesus, strange things sometimes happen. Because we're all fallen human beings and we're all in all over our head. People are always asking, is there a need for the church? Does the church have a future? <laughs> oh, my friends, as long as it's the case that Jesus is inviting us to follow him, and as long as it's the case that at the beginning and all throughout that journey, following him puts us in over our heads and a life that is so much more than he can, we can imagine. We're going to always need a church. Even in its imperfection, even in its uncertainty, you and I are always going to need sisters and brothers in Christ who can help us keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who can help us keep up with Jesus, and among whom we can grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus. I think our calling in this moment is not to fall prey to the pundits but rather in this definitive, uncertain time to give the world a demonstration of why Jesus created the church in the first place. Boulevard Baptist Church, Anderson, South Carolina. Know you exist by the design of God. Know you exist for a unique kind of relationship with one another so that together you can keep each other in the way of faith and grow and offer a witness in this community and around the world that no one else can offer. <laughs> and if that sounds like the kind of thing that someone would say if they are in over their head, What did you expect? <laughs> <laughs>